0: This is Keeping
1: Current with Wayne Potter. Welcome to the Keeping Current show. This is Wayne Potter, your host. This is the place where we talk about the ideas, issues, and trends that shape our everyday life.
0: Welcome to the Keeping Current Show. This is Wayne Potter, your host. This is the place where we talk about the ideas, issues, and trends that shape our everyday life. On this episode of Keeping Current, you'll learn a little bit about what it takes to make documentary films. I had an opportunity to learn about Hair in the Gate Productions, an Oregon film production company that is owned and operated by Richard Wilhelm and Sue Arbuthnot. Richard and Sue have lived in Oregon for many years and established Hair in the Gate over 20 years ago. I met them during the initial period of their work and more recently learned about a new film series they are currently producing called Refuge, a series. A film that is attempting to broaden the scope of our understanding about how Eamon Bundy and his followers successfully occupied the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. It ended quite sadly with one death. Richard and Sue looked beyond the headlines of that incident to understand the community's views of this occupation. Now, Let's get acquainted with them, learn about their company's views, and explore some of the various films that they have produced.
1: The producer and director of the Air and the Gate Productions, and also uh, Sue Arbuthnot, who is, who is really the, the director of photography, uh, which sounds like an exciting aspect of the, of the role there. And I thought that it would be valuable for me to, to have an opportunity to. Have you talk a little bit about what what is Hair in the Gate Productions, particularly now that you've had what over 34 films, both short and feature films over the last 20 years? Uh, and I, I was going to ask you, did you ever feel that you would ever be at a point like this where you have all these productions and all this opportunity to, to inform the world about these things that are happening in life here?
2: Well, boy, we—it is a wonderful opportunity and a blessing that we've had uh, a chance to work together, and uh, we've done work separately and together over the years. But we've uh, been working on uh, filmmaking um, primarily since we came together about 22 years ago. We're both uh, producer directors, and uh, and so forth. I, I do a lot of the filmmaking or the the photography. Um, the cinematography and Richard does all of the aerial photography and the still photography. And we both edit. So we're really in this together. Uh, But as as far as did we think we would get to this point, boy, we sure did not um, know what was going to happen from day to day for the last 20 some years. It's a, a, it's just a real process of discovery. And that's why we love what we do. Um, We're exploring questions about our surroundings, about our communities, about the world around us. And uh, this is the way that we found is effective for us to to try to answer some questions that we have about the world. And then hopefully to express some of the things that we've learned uh, with other people and create uh, a way to communicate that way. So it's something
1: we love to do. Well, that's great. In fact, as I believe, although I can't really uh, explain what it means at this point, but I, was, I think you've even won at least one award or maybe more for some of your films. Could, could you address some of that? Well, the, <clears throat> the first award we won,
3: Sue won back in 1989, I believe, for a film about uh, piper, piping school, uh, bagpipe school oh. in Coeur d'Alene. Idaho, uh, called?
2: The Pipes Are Calling. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a thesis film that I did uh, for graduate school, uh, but it was also something in a community of uh, musicians that was uh, really special to me because I participated as a student and instructor for many years.
3: And, you know, um, receiving awards is, is a really wonderful testament to the work that any artist produces, so when we uh, are awarded something like that, uh, it's a big it's a big deal to us. Um, even if it's a small festival, it doesn't matter. It's a big deal because somebody's paid attention to the work that we produce, and that means a lot to us.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And on the other hand, it's it's not necessarily why we do the work. We do, um, you know, awards are not a recognition. It's something that's ephemeral, and you can't count on it. Uh, when it comes we're certainly uh very very grateful though
1: yeah well i remember watching a clip of that uh, piper. that piper's it was really sort of fun to, to watch <laughs>
2: <laughs> well that's always uh a real plus because um i think historically a lot of the time documentary was considered something that was there to inform or educate and mm-hmm. we're very happy when someone says that they were entertained or that they laughed, or that they enjoyed themselves, or that they forgot about what they were doing outside of that few moments they spent with us. Mm -hmm. So that's all part and parcel of of the work that we hope to do, that people enjoy themselves, as well as learning, and as well as having ideas that they can share with other people.
1: Well, that's great. I'm really happy that that kind of thing can happen to you, and I congratulate you. Well, look, you've, uh, you have on your website a mission statement that's sort of multifaceted. It says you want to stir conversation, you want to challenge stereotypes, and you want to deepen understanding of uh, the complex world that we have out there. And I'm, I'm interested in is, uh, having you describe, perhaps in some graphic way, uh, the, the, what, what some of the, how you've met some of those mission uh, objectives. Well,
3: <clears throat> challenging stereotypes is one of our main uh, avenues, I think, in the work that we do. A lot of people come into um, a conversation with pre- preconceived notions, and they like to stick with those. Uh, and I think what we like to do is challenge those notions. Whether they're correct or not, it's still, still something that I think we always need to challenge, and and uh, reassert if they're if they prove to be accurate oftentimes there's more complexity and so challenging assertions i think and all of that i think it 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 helps us understand ourselves better and it helps us understand the person we're speaking with better
2: i think we have uh, two graphic examples uh one would be the stereotype of what a person who lives in a public housing community is like. Mm -hmm. Um, As if you could just tidily draw a box around that kind of person and say, well, this is what a low income uh, renter of a public housing uh, home is like in a community. Uh, We challenged ourselves when we started making the, the first feature film that we made, Imagining Home in the Columbia Villa neighborhood in North Portland. Um, And we wanted to, we did it very um, eagerly and we surprised ourselves. We learned a lot and we found that there is no such stereotype of a person who lives in a public housing neighborhood. But we found that to a person, uh, the people that live there, no matter how diverse their backgrounds or experiences were, that they cherish that community and we're working hard to protect it. The next uh, example would be the second feature film documentary that we made about a um, small dryland wheat farming community in eastern Washington, and that film was called Dryland. And in that, we were able to challenge stereotypes about what it was like to be a family farmer. And we f- we found time and time again that people in urban areas had certain sort of specific ideas of about farmers and farming, and and things like that and and in just rural communities in general. And so we were able to challenge that by um, showing that our main characters were very complex and very different from what might have been uh, a notion that people had. Um, In our current film, Refuge, we're doing the same thing. Again, it's about a rural community, very almost a frontier community really in Eastern Oregon, Mm -hmm. Southeastern Oregon. Um, And that's Harney County. And so uh, we we take we really relish that opportunity to first of all challenge ourselves to think about our preconceptions and then hopefully pass um, that kind of curiosity on to our viewers and allow them to say wow I'm surprised I didn't know uh, what people were like that you can't really you know create a, a cartoon like profile of any type of person um, and there's a lot more richness to all communities and to all people than we might have thought before. And that allows us to pave the way towards finding common ground, which is really important to us.
1: Well, looking at diverse viewpoints, I'm sure is a challenge sometimes. I don't know that you always find people that are willing to speak from both sides. But I, I, there's obviously got to be people that are always outspoken on both sides. <laughs> However, have you ever found that it's difficult more to try to You know, maybe someone is too shy. They have some valid viewpoints, and so on. That's um, in our experience. When
3: we go in and and begin talking with somebody, it's out of pure curiosity. We want to know who they are, where they are, and how they got there. I think the uh, I I think the wall gets broken down that way. I think uh, we can actually. Find common ground almost immediately with anyone, mm-hmm. and because of this curiosity, um, I think people are really willing and have been for decades to talk with us. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember anybody who has turned us down from an interview mm-hmm. um, over the years. The uh, people have stories, and they like to tell their stories, but they like to tell their stories to people who are genuinely interested. We mm-hmm. yeah.
2: are. I think the exception, uh, as far as people being reluctant to speak with us have to do with situations in their own, uh, experience, um, that they need to protect their privacy for some reason or another. And we absolutely respect that. Um, and having spoken to them has still enriched our experience and, and helps to guide us in our storytelling. Uh, but as far as, um, you know, finding a way to to express our interest in other people, even if we don't share their beliefs or their viewpoints, and and let's be clear, um, there are a lot of times when we do not share the viewpoints uh, of the people that we're speaking with, and so uh, there's not just a, a neutral kind of equivalency that we apply when we're talking to people. However. We do feel that their viewpoints are valid in helping us try to create a bigger picture of how people got to a place where they are, why they've acted the way they have, even if we don't agree with that. Um, But but allowing us to find a certain amount of uh, basic humanity, I guess, in terms of each person's experience. Mm -hmm. And that really does help us paint the broader
1: picture that we're hoping to paint one of your other uh, objectives of your mission is that you want to stir conversation. I'm assuming that that has to do to some degree with what topics you've chosen and how you present the particular topic that's going to spur interest. Am I correct in that? Or, or, you know, maybe you have some other view about how that happens.
3: Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. We did a lot of commissioned films, before we started doing our independent films. And those commissioned films, nearly all of them had to do with community. And it all they all had to do with some aspect of a community that we thought, well, we're going to have to find a way to make this interesting to a viewer. Because some of these are just, the topics just seem flat to begin with until you start thinking about the people who are involved. And so it's always going to be about the people we speak with and about how we craft the questions we ask of them and the answers they give us for new questions and so forth. And again, it's the curiosity I think that we take into it that comes out in the end of these projects as well.
2: I think it's important uh, when we're talking about spurring conversation, conversation is the opposite of directing an opinion at someone or directing uh, commentary towards someone um, from an echo chamber, let's say, or from a a position of, you know, I will convince you that I am right. That's not conversation. And so conversation entails the most important thing of all, which is listening Mm -hmm. and not talking at or to someone, but, but conversing with someone. And again, this could be across differences of uh, strong differences of opinion, but that's a skill uh, that I think we all could enhance. <laughs> I speak for myself; uh, always, always room for improvement there. Um, but in the, I think in our times, especially with um, aspects of mass media, social media in particular, um, it's a lot easier not to apply the principles of conversation, the most important, again, of which is listening. And so if we can find a way to do that, to create a space where, you know, people feel comfortable, they feel that they can hear something that they don't agree with, and they can somehow find something in that place uh, They can at least, again, acknowledge some of the humanity there and find a way uh, to inform their response having listened to that other point of view. Um, I think that's the really the strong point about documentary film or storytelling as a, in a wider sense, is that it allows us to go into other worlds that we're not familiar with and inhabit those worlds, inhabit people's uh, perceptions and ideas. Again, you don't have to agree, but once having done that, Uh, conversation can begin and can continue, even in difficult terrain that we're in. We have to take the time to be able to do that. And we think that this kind of filmmaking allows uh, for us as filmmakers, but also hopefully our viewers to be able to engage in that process.
1: Now, every media has to filter out the kind of things that they're willing to portray and talk about and so on. And I was curious, uh, you know, I don't know that this is is even possible to describe Uh, but do you have a sort of not necessarily well maybe you do have some sort of formal process or maybe informal process of selecting your topics you know I mean you had 30 years of uh-huh. practice I mean 20 some years excuse me 30 films, 20 years <laughs> do, do you well, have any way that you decide <laughs> on how
2: the heavens name what are you going to look at I would have to say that almost without fail there may be a couple of times the topics have selected us
1: oh okay (laughs) yes Yes.
2: (laughs) and uh that doesn't mean that we're not you know we don't we're not predisposed to becoming interested in certain things that's for sure um and maybe my first film the thesis film i did on the uh, uh the piping school was a deliberate choice after years of thinking about doing that and then going to film school but i think a lot of the other films um Richard mentioned that we were commissioned uh, by different organizations to to make films on certain topics, but but of course we had to agree. We had to think, well, this fits into something that we care about. Uh, mm-hmm. But but our feature films, I think all three of them have
3: landed in our laps. That's it. Yeah. Well, so for instance, uh, Dryland, the one about the Eastern Washington wheat um, people. The uh, time we were on our way up to Coeur d'Alene, driving on Highway 395, and the um, sign on the side of the road said, "Lind Washington, drop in, Mount St. Helens did, combine derby and, and, uh, <laughs> combine rodeo. and demolition
2: Derby, Combine and rodeo.
3: demolition derby and rodeo. And so we thought, okay, we've got to stop. So we did, we went in. <laughs> And we went in and we started talking with people. And that afternoon, we met two young men uh, whom we followed for almost 10 years um, yeah, to find out about what farming life was all about and watching them as they grew up into city leaders Mm -hmm. and watched as they won the combine demolition derby year after year after year (laughs) with their combine called Jaws. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, you have to see that. And by the way, Mount St. Helens did drop into the tune of Two Feet uh, in oh, 1980. Oh. Oh, so <laughs> during that
1: time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally yeah. unplanned.
2: <laughs> totally unplanned. <laughs> um, the first film, uh, Imagining Home, our first feature film, I think where we became acquainted, um, was, again, the Columbia Villa neighborhood, which was about to be demolished and replaced with the mixed income ha- um, housing um, community neighborhood uh, as part of a national program called Hope Six. And they were about to tear things down starting in 2003. And we read a piece in the Oregonian uh, where a woman who lived just outside of the neighborhood said, well, she'd heard they were going to put a library branch uh, in the new neighborhood, and but she would not go there. She refused to think about going there. And we thought, well, how could that be possible? This is Portland. We don't have you know, terrifying neighborhoods or or that kind of thing and what's going on and why would she feel this way? So the next day, I think we uh, jumped in the car and went over there. It's only four miles from our home and thought, you know, we need to find out what was scaring this person. And we found something very different. So that's where, and the urgency there was that they were about to begin uh, moving families away from the neighborhood, uh, within a few weeks. So we had to jump on that project right away. And then of course, with refuge, uh, mm-hmm. even more so it landed in our, in our laps because, uh, we were present, you know, the, the day the occupation took place. Uh, we drove by Safeway that day, which is where we go shopping all the time in, we, Burns. in Burns, right. in Harney County and, um, Saw hundreds of people in the parking lot waving flags and speaking on top of flatbed trucks and uh, with megaphones. And and we just realized this is something that is happening here. And we don't know exactly what's going to be the result of this. Uh, but we see some camera trucks showing up from news outfits and that kind of thing. And, and we live here. This is our community. And it affects us a lot so we thought we'd better see what's going on and later that afternoon we found out that the occupation had started and we realized we would better get a hold of some gear and see if we can do something with this so again it shows us
1: well that was an immediate need to decide
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we had to go back and forth to portland a couple of times to get we were kind of between equipment our camera from the last film was obsolete Oh. Uh we didn't have a new one. Um we had a, you know, Richard's still camera that shoots some video and and cell phones. And so we had to go find some gear, make trips back and forth and scurry around and and put it together as fast as we could. And wow. we did.
1: And that took a while to, to not mm-hmm. only to get your equipment but also to cover the the topic that you wanted to. Yeah. I mean right. it sort of got resolved at a certain point in time, but maybe you got resolved in the sense of the confrontation stop but yes. there must have been things going on beyond that so yes. i don't know if it took you a year or more to collect even just collect the information
2: years
3: years
1: okay <laughs> years.
3: <laughs> it's taken years uh, we we finished i think primary photography about uh, almost 2 years ago now mm-hmm. uh, and that's the principal photography that you do with the interviews and things like that even though that's the case we've been filming up until last week when we were out there. Oh, so certainly. things that we can add is um, just interstitial footage um, that go, you know, into different places. So it's not done until it's done at this point. Okay. And, <laughs> and this particular film has been six and a half years in the making so far.
2: Okay. I think, you know, the bigger block of our time is, is now, been dedicated towards the editing, of mm-hmm. course, and the, yeah. and just forming the story that we want to form. You always have to put a frame around a story. I mean, nothing is completely finite. And you always have responses and, and you know, things that happen as, as resulting from the initial um, story that you mm-hmm. began to cover. And that's the case. The editorial part is much longer. It's really where the writing takes place. I'm sure you know, of course. Um, and we have to really deliberate because our story is has really grown to encompass uh, the complexity of not just uh, what happened during the occupation and its aftermath, which was initially what we were going to cover, the trials that happened after the fact and so forth. But when we realized that it was about our community, really, the community has become the main character uh, and we realized that the community didn't begin on January 2nd of 2016, and it didn't end on February 11th of 2016 or any time that year. Uh, we, we decided that we needed to trace um, some of the history, not comprehensive, but at least some of it, uh, back as far as we could. And that really would span back to what is considered time immemorial, which for the members of the Burns Paiute Tribe, Uh, thousands and thousands of years well obviously we don't have footage (laughs) and (laughs) much evidence from that time but we did have the opportunity to speak with some amazing people from that part of the community who could help us understand the uh, the life ways the cultural ways the importance of that uh, historic part of Harney County uh, moving forward and then we also needed to look at some of the um, the cultural groups, including settlers that moved West and that kind of thing. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Uh, And some of the complexities that obviously took place between different groups, uh, conflicting groups. And so when we talk about the occupation of the the Bundy group that came into our community in 2016, 2015, actually, um, it really asked the question, what other kinds of conflicts and complexities have taken place in that community and across the American West specifically, uh, you know, and then beyond that, that could spark something like this to happen that could go either way or any number of ways uh, based on some of the past uh, controversies and conflicts that have taken place. So we wanted to explore those. That's one of the main reasons that it's taken us six and a half years to get this film
1: done. I I believe you, after you've described all the kinds of research you needed to do. Amazing. Now, there's a very unique aspect of your website that I encountered, and I I see that you're now offering streaming views of of at least two of your uh, primary uh, films. Um what did that start and, and what motivated you to start that process? You're not only now a filmmaker, but you're a distributor. So <laughs> oh, It's, it's well, that's another good. side of you that seems to be interesting.
2: we <laughs> to have to change our business card now. I
3: think, yeah, yeah <laughs> we're going to have to add a new line. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. Um With the two films we have uh, that are on our website that you mentioned as Imagining Home and Dry Land, both of those are available for streaming, for personal and for educational use. Uh, We decided to do that. Uh, We had a distributor for each of those two films over the years. When we have a distributor ourselves for our films and we have only one film in each distributor, there's not a lot of attention paid by that distributor to individual films. They have a whole library and uh, there were no sales. Essentially we, we had very, very few sales through those. And then the distributor takes a 50% cut or whatever it is. And so we thought, well, instead of managing that, we just thought we would try putting it on our own website and offering that way as streamers. And it's worked out pretty well. We've um, you know, we, we, pay attention mostly to educational sales through universities and higher education um, organizations, things like this. Uh, we did have uh, a long two year long uh, community screening set of um, travels that we did around mostly the Northwest, but also uh, other places around the country. And we realized that uh, especially those two films are very well set up for the educational market. So we thought, well, we try it ourselves and it's, it's, it's slow, but it's working.
2: Well, you know, I would just say that um, we did have a number of sales through one distributor uh, to colleges, universities and libraries, but because they have access to some of the names and the contacts that we don't. And so I think what a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker needs to do is be nimble And look at, uh, you know, non-exclusive arrangements with different distributors and certainly retain um, the opportunity to to find our own way of getting it to people. And the community uh, screening series that we did was terrific because we were able to speak uh, in person to a number of audiences, very, very different from Seattle to Chicago and uh, Wilbur, Washington and all kinds of places. (laughs) Um, So that's great. And it's kind of hard to find somebody else that can do that for you, obviously. Um, Mm -hmm. The website uh, sales, that's something that most people do uh, because they have non-exclusive arrangements set up with their distributors. And it's just, again, um, a lot of it depends on your own sweat equity when it goes into, you know, how your work is going to be seen. You have to be able to do a lot of that work yourself. And so um, it's just another opportunity, another tool in the toolbox, really and so a lot of people are doing that
1: mm-hmm. now your your newest um it's called a series your refuge series in in, in sort of in, in includes in my mind that you're going to have more than one film or you're going to have do you want to tell me a little bit more about how that's going to work
0: and oh. what it's about
1: <laughs> okay sure um
2: boy it's yeah it's a series of uh episodes within what is considered one film. And so there's an overarching story that will take place um, over a number of hours. (laughs) So it's a little bit different from the standard length, uh, 90 to 120 minute documentary or or film of any kind. When we decided that we needed to break our piece up into episodes, it was because of the complexity and the deeper dive that we were taking into the story of the Harney County community, as well as the occupation and the ramifications that kind of incident might have moving forward in our country's history. Um, So a lot more to do than we thought we could fit into the standard box of the one off, as they call it, uh, film. Mm -hmm. There were some, documentaries that existed in a uh, serial form like that um, wild wild country is a great example of a film about the Rajneesh community uh, Rajneesh from community in central Oregon really really great film um, and it found uh, distribution I think on Netflix and other places and a great story that couldn't really be told it or it could be but it found its way uh, in an episodic form so we thought okay well I think we're going to have to do it this way. And at that point, there weren't a lot of documentaries being shown uh, in this uh, format. And we thought, oh, we don't really know how this is going to work. Um, Something that changed the landscape a little bit in terms of documentary film was, uh, ironically, the, the pandemic, you know, 2020 and 2021, where a lot of people were forced to sit home and watch uh, movies on TV and the streaming, uh, you know, platforms just really went nuts, and um, we we found that well, hopefully this will stick around until we finish our film because as a you know multi-part um, episodic series, we're going to need a place to go with it, and we don't have any guarantees that it'll be shown by any you know of the familiar. Uh, services that we've all heard of but at least we're um bolstered by the notion that a multi-part like chapters in a book i guess a uh, way of storytelling mm-hmm. in a cinematic form can happen and that people can understand and accept the idea of doing that so we're we're gratified about that we'll just see what happens but uh that's just what we decided was going to need to um be the way that we packaged this particular
1: story right well you're moving in new directions that sounds awesome. oh boy <laughs> well so do you have some sense of when you might have completed this odyssey <laughs> <laughs> thank you i like that it is an odyssey it isn't is. it yeah. um,
3: no uh, we, okay <laughs> in, a, in a word no um you never really know you know we've been uh we've been Saying, well, it's going to be another six months, and then it's another six months, and so forth. <laughs> we'd, we'd like to think that by this time next year, this is done and it's out someplace, mm-hmm. and we're happy with it. Right. But dot dot dot.
2: Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, one of the th- there are a couple of things that that artists need. Uh, one is uh, certain parameters. Around you know how you're going to tell your story or how you're going to create your uh, visual art piece or your you know theatrical work or whatever, some kind of guidelines or parameters so that you don't just have too much freedom because that's just a terrible thing. Uh, The other thing that artists really ought to have are deadlines, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and in this case, uh, we don't have that, and it's certainly a double-edged sword because. While we've had work on deadline before, many, many times in all of our commissioned work, and it's um, something we rail against, but we also find a blessing. This time we don't. Uh, we're trying to create our own, however. And as Richard says, we uh, ardently hope and have decided that we'll be done um, sometime, you know next year, hopefully at this time, we're working with some collaborators. And uh, in particular, our composer, Mark Orton, who is just a fabulous and wonderful composer and multi-instrumentalist who, whom we've worked with before. Um, we need to, to reserve some very critical time to work with him when we're ready and when he's ready. And he's extremely busy, so we're going to work around that schedule and be happy to do so. Uh, but that's a big chunk of our time. And then uh, lots of other things needed to finish to finish the film beyond just saying okay the story feels done. Yeah. So um we're we're looking forward to that but and we're absolutely going to be thrilled when we can put a bow around that
1: package. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thrill, then, I'm uh, running out of my my picture oh, I had one more question, and if I don't get an answer in time, I'll check back with you quickly. Okay. Okay. I'm, as I look at the productions that you've made over these many years, it looks like uh, your your uh, effort to uh, affect, um, you know, your understanding of a view of life that may be different from what our normal one uh, is is uh, both reflective of all the kind of things you've done about the Northwest and the state of Oregon and so on. Uh, and I'd be curious about how you feel uh, uh, about the future. Do you sort of have a, this is a big question, do you have a positive view or a negative view or somewhere in between? Um, because you really are looking at a whole range of sense of feelings and thoughts about life.
3: You know, I think, I think we have settled into the idea that there are a lot of challenges out there, but when you have a challenge, you also have an opportunity. And I think that, you know, not making it too simplistic. I think that's a really important aspect to the way we look at life and the way that uh, the way that we produce our work. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of hardship out there. There are a lot of um, a lot of ideas we don't agree with, a lot of actions we don't agree with. There's a lot that we do agree with, but it all I think it all kind of goes toward. Um, what would we do in a particular situation and how can we tell the story? So if somebody else understands that it's not just a simple binary answer, it's not just always a yes or no, black and white, good or bad.
2: Yeah. That that complexity is part of our view of life. And we, you know, even when we become frustrated or flummoxed by world events that seem out of our control, and I think that's how we all feel today. Things are out of our control most of the time. What can you do? For us, get busy. We have to get busy. We have to work at telling stories, and, um, you know, it helps us just uh, personally kind of maintain uh, a bit of just hope and optimism, which I think we have naturally as individuals, but but also um, it just allows us to find some way to contribute. And so we just get busy whenever we get frustrated. <laughs> there's always work to do. And it's a, it's a um, safe haven for us. To Thank be, you so much
1: for to uh, be spending this time today with me. It's been wonderful. Uh, it's been very insightful. And uh, I, I really hope that we have an additional opportunity to interact
0: as you progress in your uh, wonderful work. Now that you've learned a bit about Richard Wilhelm and Sue Arbuthnott, I'd urge you to locate their Hair in the Gate website. Once there, you can find an extensive list of their film productions and live stream two of the most outstanding films entitled Imagining Home and Dry Land. You can view them for $3.99 each. You can find out when their current production, Refuge series, will be released. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Keeping Current. Here's till next time. This has been another edition of Keeping Current with Wayne Potter.